you settle in this morning, I want to ask you a very important question, and it's this. How do you feel about the church? How do you feel about the church? Do, do you get excited when thinking about the church, or do you get depressed? Do you think about all the exciting things that are going on, or just the things that are not happening? Do you think about the strengths of the church, or do you think about its weaknesses? When you think about people in the church, do you think about people you love, or people who get on your last nerve? Do you think about the faithful, or only those who are hypocritical? When you think about the church, what comes to mind? What's your, what's your perspective? What's your outlook? Is it optimistic or pessimistic? Can we be honest for a minute? There's a lot of negative talk about the church today, am I right? Time and time again we hear things like, the church is filled with nothing but what? The very fact that you know that, right? Should tell you something. Met people before that say, people in the church are just narrow-minded, unforgiving, unloving, ungracious people. Maybe you've made these kind of statements before. Heard some say, man, if we could just get back to the way the church was 100, 200 years ago, back when it didn't have problems. Or back to the, the early church in the first century, then we'd have no problems. We're going to learn this morning that that statement is not true. Though we have been learning about the strong start that Christ's church had in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 4, we learn in Acts chapter 5 that they were not exempt from problems. Those who argue about hypocrites in the church today have missed the fact that the church has always had hypocrites. The church has always had problems. We see this as early as Acts chapter 5, but we see it all throughout the New Testament, don't we? But before looking at that text, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We are continuing our series through Acts. We're picking back up where we left off. We've been off a few weeks. We took a break for Palm Sunday and Easter, and, and I didn't preach last week. And so back this week, we're back in Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, through Acts chapter 5, verse 11. And these two texts, they divide nicely in two. They fit together, and they divide nicely in two. We're going to look at both of them. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37, Luke addresses all the good things that were happening in the early church in Jerusalem, and then he tells of the first major issue in the church in Acts chapter 5. As I said a moment ago, up until Acts 5, things were going pretty well, right? They were going real well. God was adding massive amounts of people to his church. The church was growing daily, and it got to the point where it was past the point where Luke could even keep count anymore. That's a good problem to have. So the number of believers were growing, and we also know that they were growing spiritually. They were devoting themselves to the word of, of God, and they were devoting themselves to the teachings of the apostles who were teaching the word of God. 
They were doing an excellent job of loving and serving one another, and they were standing strong under the threat of persecution. Satan was doing all in his power, trying to dismantle the church. He, through the wicked acts of evil men, was trying to frustrate the spread of God's gospel and the advancement of his kingdom through the threat of persecution. But we're told, we learned a few weeks ago, that when persecution came, God's people responded with boldness. They were bold for Christ. And when persecution came, they were bold. Persecution came. What did they do in response? They prayed for more boldness. Said a few weeks ago that what God did through these wicked acts of persecution was he opened the door for Peter and, and John to preach his message to the religious leaders of the day. So Satan failed in his effort to stop the plans of God and frustrate the purposes of God through persecution. So what does he do? He changes his approach. In the second passage we're going to look at this morning, Acts chapter 5, verse 1 11 we learn that he changes his approach instead of bringing external pressure through persecution he attempts to cripple Christ's church from within and he's still doing that work today isn't he trying to i want to warn you second story we're going to look at is one of the saddest in this book but though that's the case we learn some incredible truths from the good and the bad. One being that the church, with all its positives, has always had issues. The early church, with all its positive, was, was flawed. Like we said earlier, there are many people today that say there are too many hypocrites in the church. And you know what my response to that is? Yep, always have been. There are today and we have room for more. Just like in a hospital you have sick people, in a church you have sinners. And just like the hospital is the best place for sick people to be, the church is the best place for sinners to be. We need to pray. Those who do not know Christ, that God does a work in their heart and life and that they respond in repentance and faith. And those believers who are struggling with sin, we need to pray through the preaching and teaching of God's word, through the ministry of his people in the church, that the Holy Spirit would make sin obvious to us and to them and, and give us a desire to turn from that sin and to get back on track, get busy living for God and pursuing godliness. So we learn in, in Acts 5 that the early church, with all its positives, had issues. And God does not shy away, get this, from highlighting these things in his word. There's a story of a painter who was told to paint a portrait of a famous individual. And this individual was not attractive. His face had been horribly disfigured by warts. And the painter, not wanting to offend the person, decided to draw this man's portrait without any of those blemishes on his face. And when he gave him the portrait, the man immediately gave it back to him and he said, paint me warts and all. That's what God does in his word when it comes to his church. He shows his church warts and all. Though he highlights the good, he doesn't gloss over the bad. 
He doesn't cover up the issues, and I'm so glad he doesn't, aren't you? Because if he did, it'd be tough for us to know today how to relate, wouldn't it? Because times we have issues, fellowship. We do. Though there are a lot of great things taking place in our church, we have had and we will have issues. And it would be tough for us to know how to respond if we didn't have God's teachings through his apostles of what his people are to do when times get tough in the church. In God's word, we see the good along with the bad, and we have lessons to learn from both. First, let's look at the good. Notice the greatness of the early church. That's point number one. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. Luke says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, y'all know him, also called Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wow, this is an amazing church, isn't it? It really is. And there are two things in particular here that we see that made this church strong. One, there was great spiritual unity in this church. These believers were unified. They were not simply a part of the same denomination. They did not simply attend worship at the same time each week. Luke says the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. They were unified. They were not a group of random people just gathered together in one place that had nothing in common, just got together one hour a week. There was a commonness among them. They were one body. They had one heart, one soul, one desire to grow in godliness, to make Christ known, to love and serve others. They didn't think of themselves first. They didn't set themselves apart from the group and view themselves in a self-serving way, saying, what can you do for me? How can you meet my needs? Luke says, not one of them said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They were unified. No one felt entitled to anything, and they shared everything and cared for one another. And this is one of the main reasons the church grew like it did. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13? He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, people will know me and know that you belong to me and be drawn to me and my church if they see you unified 
in loving and caring for one another. John 17, during Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prayed to the Father that his followers would be one so that the unbelieving and watching world would take notice and believe in him. He says, May they all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let me tell you, that's exactly what happened. God's people were unified. They loved and served the Lord. They loved and cared for one another. And the world took notice. Many gave their lives to Christ. They began to love and serve him and love and serve his people in the church. And the church grew to the place where it was past the point of Luke keeping an accurate count. Many hear that today and they say, that's not possible today. It's not possible for a hundred people to be unified like that, much less thousands. They read passages like this at the end of Acts 4, and they question whether or not that's even possible today. Well, it was for them. And you know the reason why they were unified is because their mind was set on eternal things. Their minds were set on things above. They were were focused on, they were preoccupied with who God had called them to be in Christ. They were committed to grow in godliness. They were committed to love and and serve one another. Make Christ known where he is not known. They were upwardly and outwardly focused. Folks, that's the key to unity right there. Listen. You show me a divisive person, you show me a divided church, and I'll show you an individual and a group of people whose focus is not upward and outward. Every time, every time. Think about where we would be today if this would become a priority for us. If we would truly set our minds on not what we want the church to look like, or how the church should benefit us, but if we would set our minds on what God wants us to be in Christ, we would set our minds on eternal things, if we would set our minds on growing in godliness and loving and serving God and loving and serving one another out of our love for God, if we would be upwardly and outwardly focused, where would we be today? I guarantee you we'd be unified. We'd be making an impact. That's my prayer for us. So there is great spiritual unity. There was also great spiritual activity. What were they involved in? What kind of activity? Well, one, they were preaching and teaching the word of God. There was solid biblical preaching. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Notice the apostles' sermons were Christ-centered and gospel-saturated. The phrase we're giving in verse 33, that's a good translation because the tense of that word indicates something that is done over and over and over and over again. They were not simply preaching the resurrection of Christ on Easter. Okay? 
They were preaching Christ and Him crucified, Christ and Him raised over and over again. Now, remember, this is the message back in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, that the Jewish religious leaders told them not to preach. But this was the message that Christ had commissioned them to share. Remember Acts 1.8? You're to be my witnesses. You're to be my messengers. Messengers of what? His life, his death, and his resurrection. And that's what they were faithful to proclaim. And this was the message that God was using to change hearts and lives. Though they were told not to share it, they preached it with boldness. And as we've said time and time again in here, we're to do this as well. No matter what pressures come from the outside, unbelieving and watching world, no matter who might get offended, we are called to follow this example and preach this message. And and notice what happens. Look at the end of verse 33. We're told, and great grace was upon them all. God was using his gospel message being faithfully proclaimed. He was using that message being preached by his apostles to bring people into the family of God and to bring people close together, to draw them near to God and to draw them together. And Luke tells us here, there was great grace being poured out on this church. They had favor with one another and they had the favor of God they were blessing one another and they were being blessed by God and all of that came as a result of the apostles of God through the power of the Holy Spirit of God boldly sharing the word of God so there was solid biblical preaching there was also selfless Christian service that's the other activity that they were involved in Selfless Christian service. Look at verse 32 and verse 34 and 35 again. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person, this is verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was no one in this church at this time saying, hey, that's mine, or you can't have that. But everyone said, it's God's, and it should go to the one who needs it. They, they said, whatever I have that I don't need will go to the one who does. They, they had a right view of money in their possessions. It was their servant, not their master. I've said this before in here. Money, though it makes a good servant, it makes a bad master. And they understood that. They understood what I have does not belong to me. It's God's and should go to the one who needs it. Notice something else. This was not something they were told to do. This was not something they did out of obligation or obedience to a written or spoken command. This was something that just flowed out of the love that they had for Christ and for each other. So though they didn't have to to give anything away, they wanted to because they loved the Lord and they loved his people and wanted to provide for them. And, And notice this, not one of them went without. How about that? There were thousands in this church. 
Not one of them went without. There was not a needy person in the group. They were even selling their lands and houses, things they did not need to provide for those in need. And notice how they were giving it. We're told they laid it at the apostles' feet and the apostles distributed it out, gave it out where the need was. And this is the way we do things today for the most part in the church, don't we? When you give, for the most part, you give to the general fund giving, right? And we have leadership in place who decides where the money is to go. This, I believe, is the biblical model. We see it right here. We're told twice that this money is laid at the apostles' feet to give it out to those in need. They weren't saying, well, I'm going to designate everything and make sure I know where my money is going specifically. No, they entrusted it to the leadership to give to where the need is. And Luke gives us an example of one such individual who did this. Look at verse 36 and 37. He mentions a man named Joseph. You know him better as Barnabas. That's the apostles gave him that name, which means son of encouragement. We're told that he was a Levite who owned some land. Now, this is interesting. Let me stop for just a minute. Things have changed from the Old Testament, right? And we're not told why, but, but it may be because the gospel is already changing things in the life of these Jews because in the Old Testament, Levites couldn't own land, all right? So you got Barnabas here who, who owns some land now, okay? He had bought some land. He owned it. Luke tells us that he decided to sell it and give the money away. Now, knowing what we know about the Levites, we know they didn't have a whole lot. They didn't own a whole lot. So this was probably a huge sacrifice for Barnabas. And we're told that he laid it at the apostles' feet to give to those in need. He didn't demand someone to build a building with his name on it and eight-foot letters, right? He didn't say 100 goes here, 200 goes there. He gave it. He says, you guys put it where the need is. That right there, folks, is the purest kind of giving and that's the 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 right kind of activity that was taking place in the early church they were unified one in christ one in heart one in mind one in purpose and they were involved in the right kind of activity they sat under solid biblical preaching and teaching and they involved themselves in selfless spiritual service they understood that their money and their possessions were not theirs and they sacrificially gave to those in need and they trusted God's leaders to distribute the money out appropriately where the need was. And we're told that when all this happened, there was no one without, needs were met, and God's people were blessed. There were great things going on in the early church. But again, notice there was also issues. We've looked at the greatness of the early church. Now notice the great sin in the early church. The great sin in the early churches. As faithful and as generous and loving and selfless as those in the early church were in the midst of that congregation, we also see sin and deceit. Though many had the right motivation for loving and serving one another, there was a couple in the church who did not. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But, notice the transition here from Barnabas, right? But a man named Ananias 
and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles feet so after talking about all the amazing things that were taking place in the early church and about how men like Barnabas were, were selling their property and giving the proceeds to the apostles to give to those in need Luke transitions in Acts chapter 5 and says but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and brought only a part of the proceeds and kept back the rest for themselves now some ask well what's wrong with that what's wrong with that as we've said already they were not required to sell their property they were not required by god to give anything away and here you have ananias and sapphira selling their property and giving a part of it away they didn't give all of it but they did give more than what was required so what's the issue well i'll tell you As we said in the previous passage, many of those who gave in the early church, they understood God owned everything and had a desire to use the money. They they had a desire to use the money that, that they had, that he had blessed them with, to bless others in need. They gave out of a love for Christ and out of a love for others. In this text, we learn Ananias and Sapphira did not give for either of those reasons. Instead of viewing their possessions as their servant and and giving selflessly to serve others, they were mastered by money and desired self-glory. And and they viewed selling their land and giving money away as a way they could have both. We're told that they collaborated and said, we're going to sell our land and just give a part of it away, but we're going to make it look like, now this is going to become more obvious as the texts go on, but we're going to make it look like we've, we've given everything so that we can receive the praise of men and receive a little cash as well. The sin was not that they didn't give everything. Again, God had not asked them to give anything. There was not a command to give everything. The sin was they, they lied about what was given so that they could appear more spiritual than they really were. See what I mean when I said earlier that there have always been hypocrites in the church? Here we have two, right here in Acts chapter 5. And Peter, being a man of great spiritual discernment, read right through their lies and deceit. He said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal to do what you want with it? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now notice here a little side note. Peter says, You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then later on he says, you've not lied to men but to God. It shows the Holy Spirit is God, right? Here we have, I mean, that's a side note. It's pretty key, though. He says, you've not lied to, to man but to God. And earlier he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. And why did they do that? For what reason? For the love of money and to appear super spiritual. Folks, nothing upsets God more than that. Do you know that? 
Nothing upsets God more than those who try to steal his glory away and seek self-glory and the praise of men, and especially when they deceive others to do it. That was the great sin in the early church. That was the great sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? He said, don't practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying, get this, simple summary. Doing spiritual things in front of people to appear spiritual is not spiritual. With me? That's what he's saying. Now, some get all been out of shape, like I've got to serve incognito and nobody can see me. Or if they do, I'm not going to be, you know, that's, that's not going to be honoring to God. That's not what Jesus is saying here in, in Matthew 6. He's talking about purposefully doing things before others so people look to you and praise you. He's speaking about those who serve to seek self-glory in the praise of men. And here in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they're not even being honest about what they're doing for the Lord. They deceived people into thinking they were more spiritual than they, than they were. And, and not only did they not receive reward from God, they're punished for their sin and deceit. Look at verses 5 through 10. This is pretty harsh. When Ananias heard the words of Peter, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Wow. Now let me just say, many don't like this story. They have a difficult time with this story. They, they really don't know how to make sense of it. How do we read that? How do we, how do we understand this? How do we teach this? And you know why? Many of us have difficulty with this story because we don't properly understand the righteousness of God. And we don't understand the seriousness of sin. We don't take sin seriously like God does. That's why we have issues with this story. Folks, God is serious about sin. Don't believe me? Look at the flood. Don't believe me? Look at the cross. Don't believe me? Acts chapter 5. God is serious about sin. He doesn't want his people to be okay with it. He doesn't want us to tolerate it. He wants us to take it seriously in our lives and especially in his church. That's one of the main reasons all of these epistles are written. They're written to deal with the sin that's taking place in the church. And they're written so that we'll take sin seriously and deal with it seriously. They're written to call people to repent. 
when they're struggling and turn back to God. And get this, if we don't, we also learn in the scripture that there could be consequences. Remember what happened to the Christians in Corinth? We know at the very beginning of the book that Paul is writing to believers, calls them saints. He refers to them as those who are sanctified in Christ. So he's writing to believers, but believers who had major issues. This was one messy church, right? And in 1 Corinthians 11, we we learn that many of them were not taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. They were getting drunk off the communion wine, and they were not, you know, they were keeping a lot of it to themselves and not sharing with the rest of the group. Paul says in verse 28, when you do that, When you abuse that ordinance, he says, you drink judgment on yourself. And he says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We learn that God had taken some of the Corinthians out because of their wickedness. And he does that here in Acts chapter 5. Folks, God is serious about sin, especially sin in the church. He did not save us and set us apart as believers for us to just kind of drift back to where we we were and live like the world and make a mockery of his gospel in church. He saved us and he set us apart to be light and life to this dark and dead world world and in acts 5 and 1 corinthians 11 they are meant to be lessons for us about the seriousness of sin in the church you have to think that after this situation with ananias and sapphira there was some serious soul searching going on don't you imagine imagine there were people examining their motives look at verse 11 and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I would imagine so, right? They got the message. And and I'm sure they examined their motives. And we'll learn next week as we look in in verses 12 and and moving on, especially in verses 12 through 16, that uh, we, we learn that they, after the church was purified once again, They continued in ministry. They continued to love and serve God and love and serve one another. And people got saved and the church continued to grow and thrive. Folks, get this. Here's the point. When the church gets serious about sin, serious about living for God, serious about growing in godliness and serious about sin and confessing sin and turning from sin. And when the church puts first things first and 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 lives to glorify God and lives to serve others out of a love for him and out of desire for him and his glory get this people get saved the church gets built up and God's kingdom advances that's the point that's what God wants that's what God wants us to be church church is serious about living for him a church is serious about sin a church that's serious about loving other people out of a love for God So that God is made to look awesome to those around us. So that his gospel advances. So that his kingdom advances. That's what he wants. Closing, I I want you to think about this. Think about this for a minute. If, If God cares this much about the sins of his people, and if at times he punishes those in his church for their sins, how much more so is he going to punish those who do not belong to him and those 
who are not trusting in his son alone for salvation. He tells us clearly in his word that those who live their lives apart from and opposed to him will have to face him and his wrath in the life to come forever and ever. I, I don't write the messages. I just deliver the mail. That's what it says in his word. And those who say, oh, surely not, you know, surely God's going to make an exception for me. Surely he's not going to follow through with that with me. Those who say that, they fail to understand the gospel. They fail to understand God and his righteousness. They fail to understand what the, what the Bible says about God and what it says about the seriousness of sin in our lives. God is a righteous God, folks. And he has necessarily, he is rightfully set against sin. And because that's the case, because he's righteous, he's set against us because we are sinners. And because he is a righteous God, he cannot be okay with, he cannot overlook, he cannot sweep our sin under the rug. He has to punish sin. Therefore, he has to punish us because we're sinners. Yet, though that's the case... Though God is righteous, just God, he is a God of great mercy and grace. He's made a way, folks, for his justice, his wrath to be satisfied without having to condemn us. That's the good news of the gospel. He tells us in his word, he sent his son in our place to live for us and die for us, take the punishment of sin that we deserve. He was crushed by God for us so that through Christ, we can be forgiven. He tells us in his word, a great exchange took place at the cross. God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin and he punished him in our place so that we could receive Christ's righteousness in exchange for our sin through our faith so that we could be made right with God through the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the only way. God's made a way, but only one. Only one. And I urge you today, if you have not, make Christ your Lord today. Don't believe the lie that says God is not all that serious about sin. And in the end, I'll be good enough. There is no one good enough except for one. And the only way for you to be made right with God is through that one, the Lord Jesus so if you have not, I urge you today, make Christ Lord. Turn from your sin, believe in him, trust in him, and be saved. Let's pray.